Welcome to Episode 70 of the Eat for Endurance podcast. My name is Claire Shorenstein, and I'm a board-certified sports dietitian and runner based in Santa Cruz, California. I provide virtual nutrition services to athletes of all abilities, and I host this podcast to demonstrate that there is no one-size-fits-all nutrition approach towards optimal health and performance. My athlete nutrition profile today features Corinne Malcolm, a professional ultra runner, run and ski coach, co-host of the Trail Society podcast, and editor-in-chief at Free Trail. We had one and a half hours to chat, and yet I still feel like we barely scratched the surface. We didn't talk about her science background, her podcast, or her role at Free Trail. We barely touched on coaching, and I could have asked so many more nutrition questions, but we did go real deep into her history as a high school and collegiate athlete, specifically as a high-level Nordic skier and biathlete who also sometimes dipped her toes into the running world. Corinne shares her experience with overtraining in biathlon, slowly clawing her way back to health and how her experience of chasing the Olympics as a biathlete in her early 20s affected her mindset as an ultra runner. I was really amazed to hear that from her perspective, at least, she was quote unquote winging it during those early years of ultra running. And it was in those early years that she got top 10 at Western States, by the way. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that she really started to take things more seriously. We, of course, get into the nutrition side of things, although we did veer off course a bit more than usual in this episode, but that's okay. I loved hearing her story, and I think you will as well. FYI, we recorded this episode on May 31st. I always think it's a good idea to put things into context. And Corinne actually just placed third at the Cascade Crest 100. So a huge congrats to you, Corinne. You can head on over to the Trail Society podcast if you'd like to hear all the details about that race. All right, enough from me. Please enjoy my interview with Corinne Malcolm. Corinne, welcome to the Eat for Endurance podcast. It was so fun to meet you at Canyons last month. So I'm, so, I'm glad we finally got to make this happen. How's everything going today? Yeah, I was saying that today feels like a crazy day, but this feels like a very relaxed part of my day. So I'm excited to be here and chat with you. Yeah, well, I'm glad I can uh, provide some chill moments for you. <laughs> we'll see if you feel that way later as I'm like <laughs> digging into everything and making you remember like all kinds of crazy details that you maybe don't want to think back to or just have oh, no idea God. Oh, about. reflection. Stressful. Yes. No, not yeah, that stressful. No. no, it won't be stressful. It'll be fun. Um, so I like to start these interviews out by really digging into your nutrition roots and it really sounds like you had an interesting upbringing. I was reading a little bit about your, you know, yourself and um, being from a military family and kind of living all over the place. So I'd really love to hear a little bit, bit about growing up um, in terms of your memories surrounding f- uh, food and meal times. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I grew up kind of all over the place, but I feel like predominantly in the Midwest, um, like my hometown is Hayward, Wisconsin, up in Northern Wisconsin. So I feel like I have Midwest roots, despite both my parents being from the East Coast. So I was joking with someone the other day that like, I'm like not quite Midwest nice because my parents are from Baltimore and Philly. <laughs> um, so I feel like I've, I've infused a little bit of the East Coast and now I'm a, a West Coast human. Um, but yeah, I grew up in, I'm the oldest of three kids. Um, and I joke that like, you know, we all played three sports. Like you had to eat fast in my household to like make sure they're like, you know, with two, two brothers. It was me and two yeah. brothers. And so it was like, you know, we probably went through gallons of milk a week type of thing. Like I'm trying to picture my parents feeding us and just being like, how do you keep like, how do you keep consuming things? We didn't have a Costco, but we had a Sam's Club mm-hmm. in Duluth. So we'd drive to Duluth, Minnesota, like 90 minutes away. And my mom would just stock up on everything to feed three very 
active, athletic kids. Um, and I would say that neither of my parents, I think, I think this is fair. And I think if they heard this, they would agree with me. Like neither one of them is really much of a cook. Um, I don't think they, I don't think either one of them like really enjoys cooking. Um, I think my mom, like food was like convenience, fuel, et cetera. And my dad, it was like, um, I think my mom was like mealtime, family time was a thing, but my dad, it's like, you know, we only, we only had, we ate brown rice, not white rice. We had whole wheat pasta. Like he's a family practice doctor in the Midwest where he takes care of a lot of diabetes. So we had that type of influence. And at the same time, like on road trips, we ate at McDonald's and Subway and we got ice cream at, at, at Dairy Queen, you know, like after every soccer practice and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So food, I feel like I don't, while there could have been a lot of messaging, I feel like my parents did a really good job of not having this is healthy, this is not healthy, this is good food, this is bad food. Like we ate everything. We had huge gardens growing up. I got my hunter safety license when I was nine years old. So like we've had venison and we raised chickens with a couple families, like for both eggs and for meat. And so I feel like I grew up in an environment where food was um didn't have a lot of like attachment in in any direction like food was just mm -hmm. kind of food and it was comfort and it was fuel and it was all those things but i feel like i got i was very lucky in the sense that there weren't there wasn't a lot of aggressive messaging as far as like good bad reward etc and in comparison to my peers i feel like i won the lottery in that <laughs> sense because yeah. i love food and i love all kinds of food um and i don't i think a lot of my peers i'm a i was born in the 90s i think a lot of my peers grew up in like the almond mom households and like had a lot of messaging that was not as like holistic and welcoming as the food that in the in or i guess not like didn't grow up with the same messaging i did where food was food and it wasn't this like um passive aggressive messaging or you know, subliminal messaging at all when it came to what we consumed. When you say almond mom household, I don't think I've actually heard that term. Oh yeah, this is a thing. Um, I think a lot of my peers grew up in households where there were yo play commercials about, mm. you know, like eat more, you know, protein, lose weight. Um, yeah. you know, had had moms where like maybe they gave you snacks but they ate a handful of almonds and like that was the sustenance they needed type of thing and so i think i grew up with a lot of friends who i think had parents that were struggling with their own restriction based on like societal norms and that was like so influential to my my teammates and my classmates when i think back to like high school cross country running and cross country skiing like i saw that in my classmates and in mm -hmm. their family dynamics that I just didn't have at home. Yeah. That I mean, I agree. It, it's it's such a beautiful thing when you're raised especially in that time. You know, yeah. I think now there's a lot more attention being drawn to that, although not to say not you know, there's still not great situations coming out of these things, mm -hmm. but um I think especially in the 90s, uh that's fantastic that you had that experience. So yeah. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. I'm I think I got lucky. That. My my yeah. mom had an eating disorder in college, and I think uh, that that likely informed her. I don't I, I mean it's it, it's interesting because I feel like 
she was able to put that aside when it came to like her like being you know like kind of like fully not healing but like moving forward from that place and the way that mm. she raised us like it was not I, I like I think I'm re- I'm super tight with my mom we're very similar beings um and I can see how she struggled with disordered eating and ultimately an eating disorder in college um from like a control perspective um but that did not like carry into into my upbringing at all and I think that is mm. like unique and very uh I don't know. Like, I just, I don't know what it is about her that allowed her to be like, this is this, this is like my new relationship with food and with my children. And it never like bled into my existence. Yeah. Well, good job to your mom. Yeah. She did a, kudos she, she did, Dale. Kudos we to love, mom. We love mom. Yeah. She's <laughs> um, so you mentioned you were extremely active. Uh, can you share a little bit about, you know, what kinds of activities, sports and stuff you got up to as a young kid? I know you got into biathlon and Nordic skiing very competitively later on, but maybe kind of before that. Yeah, I grew up, um, my dad is like a traditional, like Philadelphia, like basketball, football, baseball guy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've always been innately competitive. Um, And then they gave me two brothers to race against all the time. So this was great. You know, (laughs) I think I would have been a horrible younger sibling because I think I would have been even like, more like I have to keep up. It was good yeah. that I had younger brothers as opposed to older siblings, I think, from mm-hmm. like a, a well-being standpoint. <laughs> I think things would have gotten uglier um in that sense. But yeah, I grew up playing every sport. My parents were of the mindset that you should try everything. Um they were of the mindset that you should if you tried something and committed to it, like we were gonna do it for the season type of thing. Like mm-hmm. we weren't gonna do ballet for a week and then decide we weren't gonna do ballet type of thing. So we did I figure skated I did a little bit of ballet. I was really bad at ballet. It was not for me. Um, but I did figure skate a lot, like all the way through, like from kindergarten until high school, essentially. Oh, wow. Um, and then I played a little bit of basketball in elementary school, but that bled into like soccer became my thing. So I played soccer and softball. I did some casual Nordic skiing in kind of elementary school and middle school, but that wasn't like a main sport. I was really bad at it, did not enjoy mm. it. Soccer, I think, allowed me to like get out a lot of aggression <laughs> and like play, play very physically as yeah. a kid. Um, but yeah, we tried everything. We grew up in a town with like lumberjack sports. So we like log rolled in the summer. We did competitive it's log amazing. rolling and lumberjack sports. So I think it's like <laughs> all those little things. Um, we, we tried. I think the only sport I legitimately didn't play was volleyball. Like I did a season of basically everything else and we just got to find what we really like liked and jived with and what we were passionate about. And so that became eventually like figure skating, soccer, running. I really wanted to run track. I thought I was like, a, I was like, I'm a sprinter and a high jumper. This is for me. Um, and look where you are now. <laughs> and look where I am now. And um, girls soccer in Wisconsin is a spring sport. So it conflicts with track and field. And so I chose track and field over soccer and then eventually became a, I played club soccer in the fall and that eventually became cross country running in the fall. But yeah, I did a little bit of everything and mm-hmm. growing up in a tiny town, like there was an expectation of being a three sport athlete just because I think it kept all of us out of trouble, mm-hmm. um, which I totally appreciate. Like I was in school for the extracurriculars. So yeah. that, that like that worked for me. It was like one season to the next. You didn't play any one sport year round. You had like a fall sport, a winter sport, and a spring, summer sport. Mm-hmm. 
that's that's such a nice well-rounded way of doing things you know rather than just being in one that's great um how did biathlon get into the mix like that's such a that's such an interesting sport i had to like look that up again and be like oh yeah that's the rifle one yeah you're like it's not is it is that running and swimming i know i know i was like what is that again yeah um let's do athlon i know yeah exactly so i um yeah so biathlon is nordic skiing and shooting and i had been introduced to it a little bit during my junior year of high school, I lived abroad in Eastern Europe um, in a country called Latvia. Mm-hmm. And I took part, I went to school in the morning and then everyone goes to either art school, music school, or sports school in the afternoon. Like you hmm. have like a secondary kind of enrollment. Yeah. And so I went to sports school because I was like a total jock. And um, <laughs> I'd kind of fallen in love with Nordic skiing during my sophomore year of high school. So much so that if I had fallen in love with Nordic skiing a year earlier, I would have probably gone to Sweden or Norway or, or like a traditional like skiing country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was going to Latvia, not for sports. Like I just needed to get out of high school type of thing. But Latvia is a really small country and a lot of countries in Europe who can't really fund both a cross country skiing, um, like professional league or team for the world cup and the Olympics, um, pick between biathlon and Nordic skiing. And a lot of those countries pick biathlon because it's a super popular sport in Europe. And so I didn't really care about biathlon, but I wanted to train for skiing. And the training group I was part of was a biathlon training group as part of the sports school. So I, you know, they would be doing combos. So shooting with like either running or skiing. um, And I would just do the running intervals with them or the skiing intervals. And I did a little bit of shooting there. And so I had some exposure and the gear started turning and when I came back to um, the U.S. at the end of that year, I was still really focused on Nordic skiing, but biathlon like was still always in the back of my mind, kind of like chipping away. Um, ultimately, went to went to college in Montana and Bozeman for at Montana State. Once again, to go to school, but kind of really to ski. I really wanted like that's <laughs> that was the primary motivator for getting yeah. there. Yeah, um, skiing made a lot of my early adult life decisions which is nice because it like pairs down the options for you um you're like oh there are only 18 schools in the country you can go to and ski oh that's easier to make it make a choice um so i ended up there was on the ski team we had a huge freshman class which was amazing like our freshman women's squad was huge and super inspiring and i was traveling on the team but for ncaa's in cross-country skiing you can only send a maximum of three men and three women even if you qualify more than that, you only get three and three. And so we would routinely qualify five or six athletes. And then the coach would pick three and three. It wasn't like they could take anyone who qualified. It wasn't just like, oh, you were ranked one, two, three in the, in the qualification period you get to go. And and she definitely prioritized seniority, which is totally understandable. Um, She wasn't an athlete or she wasn't a coach that was there to, you know, only win collegiate championships like she like had a much more holistic approach which i think is probably unusual but seniority and that kind of stuff was a was a huge thing for her and so i qualified both my freshman and sophomore years but did not get to go and so i was still racing as a junior at the time and was just like frustrated and right time right place was at junior nationals and skated super well there and the biathlon development director was was there and he said hey like you you're skiing really well like would do you want to try biathlon and i was like oh like 
cool opportunity travel. <laughs> like someone wants me to be there because yeah, I was like, yeah. I fe felt unwanted in this collegiate system where wasn't getting it to go to the championship event. Um, and like, I had thought about transferring. I, I approached the running coach at Montana state, Dale Kennedy and said, Dale, if you give me a scholarship, I'll run, I'll quit the ski team and I'll run cross country track and field for you. Um, but there wasn't money in the budget to, to mm -hmm. give me a scholarship. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to transfer. I'm going to go abroad. I'm going to do something like I just, I've got to like felt very stagnant and biathlon walked in the door as I was in the midst of that. And so I literally dropped out of college and drove my really old Honda pilot across the country to Northern Maine, where we had like a junior team training facility and like yeah. lived in a ski lodge for a summer and picked up biathlon and ended up, you know, I, I made it, I made it work with the uh, NCAA eligibility folks so that if I was just gone for a year, I could come back and, and join the team again and I wouldn't have messed up my eligibility. Um, and instead I made the national team that spring and did not come back um, yeah. for like four years. So it was a whole, <laughs> so, you know, a whole, a whole thing, but yeah, it, yeah. it was one of those things where it was like opportunity, um, someone knocking on the door at the exact right time where I felt stagnant, um, which I think speaks to a lot of my life where it's like stagnation has come like i have to like change something to to, yeah. move, to for forward progress and that was biathlon so skiing and shooting for the whole olympic cycle yeah and i want to put a pin in that because i definitely want to come back to biathlon specifically um and now i want to rewind a little bit because i'd love to hear what you remember and maybe you don't but is there anything nutrition focused that you remember in terms of your approach to nutrition specifically in the context of sports and, you know, especially as you became more competitive. I mean, it sounds like you're always competitive, but at least in terms of thinking about performance, you're a little bit older, you're, you know, in high school, um, going into college and, you know, you're doing all these different sports. So both like thinking about strategies, if you, if that was even on your mind at all, number one, and number two, kind of different things you may have done from one sport to the next because you were constantly transitioning from one thing to another. Does anything kind of come to mind there or is that kind of a blur since it was a while ago? I feel like it's a little bit of a blur, but I also okay. like remember kind of some distinct things of like, you know, becoming really aware that like while we're driving, growing up in the Midwest, our conference to race was like, you know, the closest school is 30 miles away. Mm. The like we were driving upwards of two hours potentially like where we were in our conference for a meet. And so I was like, Oh, like, yeah, like we should bring snacks for the bus. Like we should eat something once we get out of school before, like while we're driving to the meet, et cetera. So I feel like some of that stuff, like recognizing our coaches did a good job of being like, you're responsible. You need to remember to bring dry clothes and a snack and like show up prepared. Um, so I think that was really important. Um, but I don't remember anything like super specific sport to sport. There were moments when I was like really getting into cross country skiing where I remember going for a run with some post collegiate athletes in the summer. And this is like before hydration vests were a thing. Like we ran with like, you still like skiers still use them, like hopefully mostly for skiing and not when they're running. Cause it's probably not good for your back, but basically it's an insulated water bottle that we wear as a waist belt. Um, and there's a huge pocket at the top because, you know, you maybe have gloves in there or kick wax or something. So it's like kind of a funny structure. But I remember being on this run and Garrett Cuzzy, who was, you know, a recent Middlebury grad, he was training for the Olympics. We had a post-collegiate Olympic development team in my hometown. 
for cross-country skiing and Garrett legit pulls out like a piece of cake or something from his hydration vet like pack like <laughs> in the it. middle of the run and was like yeah like I got a fuel on the run you know like this is like we have to fuel while we're training we're out we're running for two hours like you have to bring fuel yeah. and that just being like oh okay like we have to bring fuel and it can be cake or whatever so it was like getting like those moments I remember dawning on me and and that feeling really natural same sort of thing into college like eating before practice was a must and eating before we did long runs every single weekend with the ski team and they set them up so we had just enough time to get to the dining hall like the dining hall opened late on the weekends which is horrible and we had to like be at the you know be at the ski vans at 8 a.m or something to drive to the trailhead and the dining hall opened at 7 45 so you would like be at the dining hall when it opened you'd get a bagel you'd load it up with like inches of cream cheese like the fattest bagel sandwich and you would run with that like from like our dining hall like across the parking lot to the athletic complex where the ski vans were and you'd just be eating that like on your way to the trailhead and it was like the perfect ultra training i did not know i was doing (laughs) at the time but like it. it was you know those things like where it was like those weren't it wasn't an it wasn't optional it wasn't like a choice it was like that's what you did and it was like you had to do that in order to like actually take on training and adapt and feel feel good and not bonk in the middle of a three hour long run on a Saturday morning. I love it. But I mean, this is where everyone's experience is so different because mm-hmm. I've spoken to people, whether it's high school, college, you know, and mar- largely runners, though. So I'm not sure if it's because maybe it's a little different being mm-hmm. a skier, maybe not. Um, but runners who were like, oh, well you know, I didn't eat because I felt better when I was on empty or whatever, Mm -hmm. no one else was eating or whatever it may be. Right. So this is why it's so interesting to hear everyone's different story and experience. Cause I mean, that was a fantastic experience that you have. Like feeling is not optional. It's what you have to do. Yeah. I got super. (laughs) And I think I was lucky in that sense too. Like we had a very tall team. So I was like one of the Uh. smaller people on the team. My, um, one of my roommates, this guy, Tyler Ryan King, we were like, we're, mirror images of each other as far as like height and and stature goes um so we were like the two small kids on the team and i think that we i got a little bit lucky there too where like you know eyes weren't on us at all when it came to like was there any criticism um we like skiers lift a lot like we had three like three heavy lifting days a week most of the year um and our coach did like the communication was mostly good around it, but we had like, it was once a week where you'd weigh in at the gym when you were there. And the, the story we were told, and I was never on the criticizing end of this. And so I don't, I can't speak to all of my teammates experiences. I'm sure there are people who weren't in the headspace to like take that on at all. Um, But it was the, we don't want you to fluctuate either direction. We don't want you to, you know, gain a lot of weight. We don't want you to lose a lot of weight. We want to like, make sure that you're staying stable over the course of the year type of thing was how it was mm. phrased. But I'm sure there were, I'm sure I have no doubt that I have teammates who were on one end of that or the other, particularly as like a freshman coming into a totally yeah. new environment where that yeah. was not easy. But for mm. me, like that was not, that was never an issue because I was never on the criticizing end yeah. of that. So I yeah. think that that was, you know, like I'd come in with like ice cream cones to the gym to weigh in. <laughs> And I would like try to hand the ice cream cone to like the athletic training staff. And they'd be like, no, you got to hold that while you're on the scale. And I was like, okay, sure. Sounds great. I love um, that. What so a great like image. That, that's, that's a different relationship to that experience than I'm, I'm sure teammates of mine have where yeah. 
maybe that was a, that was a bigger struggle because they had wider weight fluctuations or staff was being critical of those wider weight fluctuations. Like I can't speak to any of those stories, but for me, it felt like our team had a overwhelmingly good relationship with fueling and with eating and with body image in part because the sport in general is just like, you're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to like, it, it's, it's body shape agnostic in a lot of ways, as far as like performance goes. And so I think that it is a more forgiving landscape than traditional running landscapes yeah. as well. But you were on the cross country team, running team. I was on well, loan. Right? Yeah. And that was a so, different feeling environment. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. So it was an interesting, so Montana state is a division one school. We're kind of small D one. Um, and had a lot of title nine scrutiny to balance like the football team, for example. And so we had very large ski team, female ski teams and female running teams to balance, um, the critical mass of a division one football team, which is a lot of, a lot of individuals. So you've got to balance that out from a title nine perspective. So the, I was on loan to the cross country running team because we had a number of athletes that'd be injured every fall. Um, which I think is just much more commonplace with athletes that are running year round, particularly at the collegiate level. Um, and Dale Kennedy, the coach saw me running at ski practice and was like, can we borrow that one? Like, is that one, can we take that one? Does she, is she free this weekend? Um, and this, the ski coach like a, was like, yeah, you can borrow her, but she doesn't train with you guys. She trains with us, which is like an interesting, interesting. dynamic in the yeah. sense that like, I'm this kid showing up to meets who like doesn't have doesn't have to go to running practice but like i'm mm -hmm. still getting my butt kicked at ski practice you know six days a week so i think there was some interesting dynamics there as far as like walk you know walking on essentially to this division yeah. one collegiate running team um as a little bit of an outsider but we also had a bigger women's team both from like a cross country and a track and field perspective than a men's team. And so I think that lessened the competitive blow a little bit for a lot of women in the program where more people were allowed to be on the team than could travel. But the men's team was much more selective because they couldn't have a very big roster because of title nine. And mm -hmm. so I think overwhelmingly that led to pretty good team dynamics because that we were allowed to have more women on the roster to maximize those numbers. Um, that being said, still being on loan to a cross country running team is it a bit so weird. weird. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't Very have strange. to be, I didn't live in their environment, right? Like I, yeah. um, I wasn't eating meals with them during the week. I wasn't going to their, their practices during the week, et cetera. So I don't know all the ins and outs of like what their large, larger dynamic was, um, but traveled with them. And I just felt like they traveled in like luxury because they like took nice greyhound buses when they drove to meets and they flew to things and the ski team drove to everything to stay under budget at all cost and so i felt like i was like the spoiled little rock star when i got to run because we like traveled in like a very like it felt bougie compared to the ski team where it was like we can fit 13 kids in the sprinter van we are driving it you know 10 hours to colorado to race so it felt like different worlds yeah. Um, but it was super fun. Like I, I feel very grateful that uh, for my like two, like almost complete seasons of cross country running, um, for Montana state without having to go through the rigmarole of, uh, mm -hmm. running full time and just getting to yeah. experience racing five Ks and six Ks, which I'd never done before. Cause high school running in Wisconsin, we, women ran four Ks in high school, mm. the boys ran five K okay. the girls ran four K and which I think has changed. I think they do five K and five K now, but 
yeah, I went to collegiate running and I was like, what's your cross country PR? And I would be like, you know, 1340 or something. And they're like, wait, what? And I was like, oh, it's a 4k. <laughs> I'm like it's, it's a little bit short. <laughs> like you are so fast. Um, that's, that's amazing. And do you remember, and again, this might fall into the, it's too blurry bucket, but does anything stand out to you in terms of how you were fueling for those races or any strategies there versus um, kind of what you were doing there? Or is it still kind of, you don't quite remember what you were doing? I feel like I was in the mindset where it was like, I know I need carbohydrates. And so I think it was like, you know, we ate, we ate well, we ate. um, I think the hardest part of a collegiate athlete was that when we traveled in that, in that program anyway, we had like a a food allowance, Mm. like we were given money as a food allowance and that like, you know, you're like, Ooh, can I make money this weekend? Like, can I, I just like, it's more like poor college student than like having a relationship with food where you're like, Oh, if I get the $12 option, I'm pocketing $8 or whatever. Like it's, I think that was more of it than anything else probably was like, Mm. we're poor and frugal college students than a relationship with food. But I feel like it was very generic, like, or having pasta for dinner. Yeah, um, okay. type of thing. And this, this type of pasta makes me feel better than that type of pasta. My roommate for a lot of that was this woman, Rebecca Sorensen, um, who now is a doctor, I'm pretty sure. Um, and she had a bunch of food allergies. And so she would feel horrible after racing because you just ran really hard. And she had like food allergies that made her just like feel kind of bad. And so she would eat a Snickers bar after every single race because she was like, well, normally this makes me feel bad, like feel sick. But I already feel sick, so this is great. I can eat these things that I really love. So I feel like it was kind of like a I loved that because she was like, Oh, heck yeah, I already feel, you know, I already feel sick from racing. So now I can just add to it and enjoy my Snickers bar too. So, you know, it's I've got friends who've done that who are celiac, but they like they get that one fried egg sandwich after yeah. their ultra because it's like they love fr- a fried egg sandwich, but they have they can't get it normally because they can't eat the bread or something. So oh it's like the body's already messed up. Why don't I just like one more one more thing won't hurt it too bad. So but yeah, I feel yeah. like we were mostly frugal and poor versus um, you know, a, a greater dynamic than that. There are things that I know now that I like wish I knew in college from like hydration or sure. like protein ingestion, which I think we're really coming around to in endurance sports. Like yeah. I'm like, oh, like those those little things probably could have made big differences as like a 19, 20 year old for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's circle back to biathlon. So you left college. Uh, you were basically pursuing that full time um, with the senior national team in the hopes of competing at the 2014 Olympics. But ultimately, it sounds like you overtrained, or I'm not sure what the situation was there, and you were unable to compete. So. I would love for you to talk a little bit about this period of time um, and how you would evaluate your nutrition and how that kind of played in. Because when it comes to at least overtraining, there's always like the the flip side of the coin is underfueling, right? So curious about kind of what that all looked like for you. Yeah, I feel like there's some interesting research that's come out recently of the like the difference, like um, like a red S or reds versus a overtraining. Like they have Mm -hmm. almost identical symptoms. But if you can rule out like an underfueling, then you're like, okay, cool. Like you don't have reds. You are in the yep. overtraining under recovery yep. camp. And I would also state too that like when I talk about overtraining or overtraining syndrome, I'm not talking about something that you can like do as a verb. Like it's not like, a, oh, I overtrained a little bit. It's like, no, I have like maladapted to physical activity 
and now have depression and absorption issues and my irons in the tank and I like have no energy to do anything much less go for a run or a bike ride or whatever so it's like the end of the train is how I like that that's the final station like you've Mm -hmm. gone you've like you've all the red flags have gone up and you've ignored all of them for not just like days but weeks and months etc yeah um so I was in this position where I'm competitive and I'm hungry and I've like been named to the senior national team and it's like you have to kind of you feel like you have to prove yourself akin to like people who get their first ever running contract even if it's little even if it's like they give their solomon's giving me shoes like yes you like (laughs) oftentimes people will like underperform in that next like the first year of their contract because there's like all this anxiety around performing to meet expectations that feel external but really are coming from you so i was on this national team and i was like i need to show that I belong. Like I've been given like what an honor to like make this make this team. I'm surrounded by the, all these amazing athletes. I feel like they, you know, like I I want them to see me as like they're equal but they're senior to me in a lot of regards. They're I think, you know, at that point I think I had two male teammates that were only a year older than me, but I think the next closest like female teammate to me was at least 4 years older than me. Um, there's this interesting dynamic where like a bunch of the men, I think one guy on the national team at that point had a college degree and like every single female on the team had like graduated from Dartmouth. Like, so I was the one, the one female athlete who like didn't have a college degree. Like the dynamic there was really interesting as far as like when people entered the sport. So I'm young. I've just made my first senior national team. I like want to belong. I want my older teammates to like, like me and I like want to compete with them, but also like I'm trying not to step on anyone's toes. And I think the team had really come to a place where they were, everyone was driving really well. Like I think they had had a history of like having a bunch of issues with like these people trying to beat each other to make it to Europe to race versus like, no, we can elevate each other and we can all go to Europe to race and like do well on the international stage instead of spending all of our energy destroying each other in practice. But you're like living in an Olympic training center, which is kind of a fishbowl. Mm-hmm. You like train with the team every single day, basically. So it feels like you're kind of under constant evaluation. And that did mean that I got really good, really fast. Like I, my shooting got better. My skiing got better. I got fitter, but only to a certain degree. And I think there was just like a lot of oversight. Now the, bi- the U.S. biathlon team has a really strong junior program has a really strong development program for young seniors because we don't have a U23 category like a lot of other Olympic style sports have. Uh, Cross-country skiing has a U23 world championships, Um, mountain biking, road biking, et cetera. They have a U23 group. Oftentimes U23s and seniors will race together, but they still have kind of a separated category, um, a separated podium, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like they're Mm -hmm. not evaluated on the same tier there are still 21 22 year olds that will perform at an exceptionally high level but you're also you have a better peer reflection of like where you stand than like i'm 21 and i'm competing against 31 year olds and we're all evaluated the exact same way so i had this experience in which there wasn't a development structure in place and so the coach's goals for me like i was very goal oriented like in college we had like we did, you know, specific strength testing. We did specific uphill running time trials. We did a 3K on the track. We had all these like mar- like markers of like individual performance increases. And I got to this national team structure where 
that didn't exist outside of like shooting tests where we had like very specific, like 30 shots prone, 30 shots standing that gave you a score. That was very, that's a very individual marker, but from a physical standpoint, we didn't have um, like regular time trials or check-ins or a way to understand if we were personally improving. And so my coach's goals for me was like to get closer to my teammates, like Mm. to elevate myself to their level. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. But in reality, the finish line kept skiing away from me because they're all like in their prime training dedicated to the sport. And so it's like, sure, I'm getting better, but the finish line isn't getting any closer. And so it's like, you, you can imagine yourself in a running race where the finish line, you can see it and they just keep moving it a little bit further away from you as you're like running or skiing towards it. And so there was the perfect storm of like a lack of oversight um, in which I needed someone to protect me from me. And my high school coach had protected me from me. My college coach had protected me from me where they could identify this in my natural state of being of like, yeah, Corinne needs to be told when to like chill out and sit down and take a rest day. And when I wasn't given, it's kind of handholding, I guess, but when I didn't have that person to really sit down with me and evaluate that stuff and help me see, you know, the forest for the trees type of thing where it's like, it's really easy to miss, miss the trees because you're just so focused on one. You're either very micro or you're very macro and you like, can't really put the whole picture together. That's very much what it felt like. And so that lasted it was probably a year of really rapid development and then like a year of like steadily being overcooked and that not not getting a good recovery period in there. And so finally in, I think it was the fall, it was going into the winter of 2013. I ended up like I approached our, I approached actually our team psychologist. Like I had request, I had gone to the athletic training department maybe six months before this and said, hey, like, I think I need to talk to someone, but I don't want to talk to, I don't want to ask our coaches about it because I feel like I'm in this fishbowl. Like, can you, via the US Olympic Committee, like, find me a, a psychologist to talk with? Because I just, like, I need I need someone to, like, bounce how I'm feeling around off, which I think was, like, very self-aware of me as, like, a, you know, a 22-year-old um, in this environment. And so, they did. They found me a team psychologist. He's this guy, Sean McCann, who is works out of the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. He's brilliant. He's worked with a lot of actually the US, Team USA like marksmen, like shooters. Um, he's a super brilliant psychologist. He ultimately ended up becoming the our team psychologist as well. Like <laughs> he ended up working with all my teammates. Yeah. Um, but I like developed that relationship, and I remember I think I had gone home. We had gone. We had trials in Minnesota right before Christmas, I had stayed there and raced like another set of races to kind of prove that like I was in a good, like a good spot. I narrowly missed out on a European like race trip. Essentially. Um, they didn't name a full team. They took a partial team. I narrowly missed out, but I was kind of like the lone, the lone survivor or like the last, or like the last person to be picked type of thing from the national team. And they didn't know what to do with me. And they were like, well, why don't you go up to Northern Maine where I had already been like previously? And I was like, I'm not going to go train by myself in Northern Maine just so that you have a babysitter for me. Like I am an adult. I don't want to just like sit here by myself. 
And so I was like, I need to go back to Montana just to like be in an environment where I'm happy, where I have friends, where I have community, where I can train. There's a great Olympic development team there, not for biathlon at the time, but for Nordic skiing. We had a very small biathlon range. We had a little two point biathlon range that no longer exists. It was up in the woods at the Nordic Ski Center um, that we like brought back to life because there were a couple <laughs> of us who needed it. Now there's like a beautiful 30 point like World Cup caliber range at this venue. Um, but essentially like I called my the psychologist and I was like, Hey, like, I think I need to like go to Montana. Like, I don't think I can stay here for the winter, but I'm worried that that's going to get me into trouble. Like, I'm worried that that won't go over well. And he was like, will you still, he's like, do you think you'll be in the sport in the spring if you stay in out East for the winter? And I was like, no, I, I don't think like, I, I think if I'm like forced to stay out here for the winter, like I will leave the sport. And he was like, okay, I think that's your answer. Like, I think if you want to try to stay in the sport, like, why don't you go to Montana for the winter and train and like figure it out for next summer type of thing. So like I did, I packed up my car. I drove it through Canada in a snowstorm to the Midwest. <laughs> I sold that vehicle, bought a vehicle and then drove to Montana um, to be with friends and like my chosen family and to be in the sunshine and ski. And ultimately this was 2013, like the year, the winter before the Olympics. And that ended up costing me my spot on the national team for the following year. Um, I got a, a call. They, they announced the team early April every year. So it was my birthday. So I turned 23. I like had a immersion blender accident where I like oh, God. <laughs> tried to cut off the top of my trigger finger on accident. I'm left. I shoot left-handed. So I had like, the, I had like seven stitches in my like trigger finger. I turned 23. Um, my like new boyfriend was in Europe um racing bikes i was like i got this like phone call at 6 a.m from the national team high performance director being like hey corinne like we're gonna focus we're gonna put our funding into like this older group of women for the olympic year like like we still like expect to see you at trials etc like so sorry to do this to you and so i had made the sport emotionally sustainable for me but it wasn't at that point going to be financially sustainable so i did I, i trained and um, I continued to train and felt like I had kind of rebalanced some things, but it that fall or I guess later that summer of 2023 going into the 2024 or the 24, yeah, 2013 going into the 2014 Olympics, just realized that like I, my body needed a break, like yeah, was like profoundly anemic in kind of weird ways was having like gut absorption issues mm. that couldn't be explained via kind of any other mechanism. And so raced the first half of Olympic trials and then ended up pulling myself from the second half. Like I'd made it through the first half and pulled myself from the second half of Olympic trials to go back to school. So when my teammates, like people who I had lived with and trained with all walked into the Sochi Olympics, I enrolled in 21 credits at Montana state to, <laughs> to fully commit to something totally different. Oh, but yeah, it was a lot, like it's an experience that like, I wish I could bottle up and explain to people in a really coherent digestible manner because it's like i can see athletes verging into these spaces at times particularly young athletes young hungry athletes yeah um figuratively hungry i guess they might be literally hungry as well (laughs) but like i see that and it's like i want to protect them yeah from that experience because like I, i needed like one person essentially to like like make sure I was good. And I just didn't have that within that national team structure, which I think exists now. I think they've corrected. I think they broke a number of us 
and realized that they had this junior to senior development pipeline issue where they were having to recruit like basically only new collegiate grads who had never done biathlon before. They were having a hard time bringing their 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds who had already been involved in the sport up to the senior ranks. They were having to like only recruit post-collegiate Nordic skiers and teach them how to shoot. And they realized that they had to fix that pipeline if they wanted to really like elevate potentially to like a world, a world cup, a world championship and Olympic medalist level. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. And I'm really curious how you were able, cause it sounds like you were in a, a quite a hole, you yeah. know, in terms of your health, how were you able to kind of really identify all of those issues? Like you mentioned gut absorption, you mentioned anemia. Um, how were you able to identify those issues and more importantly, really recover from them and get back to health? Um, because of course, not that long after is when you started running and mm-hmm. where you are now. Right. And that led to kind of finding distance running and ultra running and all of that. So I'm curious kind of what recovery looked like and how you got there with nutrition or whatever else you were using. Yeah, totally. And I think there was this time period while I was living in the Olympic training center where being back in a dining hall environment, I don't think was great for me. Cause I like, mm-hmm. I love cooking and yeah. Tyson was like, Tyson is all, like, it was at least was a, like a U.S. Olympic sponsor so like it was like where does this chicken come from like i grew up raising the chickens that i ate type of thing which is like so purist and funny but that was like a big issue for me as like a 21 year old living in this dining hall environment yeah um so when i got to montana at some point in time i had some blood testing done and like sure enough like while i was at the olympic training center and then again in montana and i was just having this like kind of chronic anemia in which my ferritin would like plummet and then slowly, mm. like my hemoglobin would also decrease. But there was a, there'd be a long, there'd be a period of time where my hemoglobin would be relatively normal and my ferritin would be super low. And finding a, a hematologist who understood that while, you know, I wasn't single digit ferritin by any means, I was like a 11 or a 12 or something. And so it's like, oh, you're just That's on the low end of like clinically, oh, no. <laughs> of like clinical normal. It's fine. You're just in the low range. And you're like, no, like I've no. had blood testing done since I was a, a high school athlete. Like I know where my ferritin and my hemoglobin and my hematocrit normally are. This is abnormal for me. Um, this is not this is not where things should be. And so eventually um I ended up working with a really good hematologist who mm-hmm. could ident- help me identify that and mm-hmm. was willing to help me with um kind of like an iron infusion protocol where it was like I didn't need super high doses, but we wanted to see initially if I, if we bypassed my gut, yeah. would I hold on to ferritin? Like, would sure. I, would things be normal again? And sure enough, if we bypassed my gut, I would have like normal hematological markers again. And so that was, that's been a process that I've gone through for probably the better part of like seven or eight years now um to the point where it's like we can track it over time like this trend of like i I still don't perfectly absorb iron from my diet but i don't have nuts i don't I'm, i don't have celiacs i don't have any sort of like crohn's or crohn's adjacent gi issues like we don't we kind of have agreed to not or i've decided not to like pursue the white whale type of thing because i'm not i don't have any other like abnormal biomarkers or things and that no, would be like, like abnormal GI symptoms. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't have like abnormal GI stuff. So we decided like kind of as a team, like 
unless something new presents itself in which we are concerned from a health perspective that I've got an underlying condition for autoimmune response um, or auto, like actual autoimmune condition beyond, I think, I think when you're overtrained, essentially, you, you, it is of itself kind of its own autoimmune metabolic condition. Um, and so have managed it with very spaced out iron infusions and we don't jump on it. We don't do anything crazy. It's one of those things where it's like I get blood testing every just like a CBC and an iron panel and a ferritin mm-hmm. um, every three months with my hematologist um, and just monitor it over time. And that has looked like I've had infusions as close together as every three months because there was a while where things were dropping off really rapidly. And then now it's like it's like an annual iron infusion type of thing. So things I feel like are kind of slowly repairing. Um, and, but I do think part of that too has been like, I have been more cognizant with protein ingestion. And I do think that that has helped in some mm. way to, um, manage, mitigate loss, help with red blood cell production, et cetera, um, over time. So I think it's one of those things where it's like, I really messed things up and now I've slowly repaired things. And just like endurance training where it's like, there are no overnight results. It's like you have to work at things for years and years and years to see things change. I think that that has been kind of like the story of me recovering from overtraining and also recognizing, too, that you can like you can perform at really high levels with, you know, less than ideal biomarkers. I think that if I was a 1500 meter runner on the track, the uh, room for air is a lot like is is really small. You know, like a tiny, the tiniest thing I think has a bigger impact versus um, when I'm competing in ultras and long trail races. I'm going to cough. Hold on. Go for it. <coughs> My earbuds have been falling out this whole time. So that's why you see me <laughs> like poking them. <laughs> Couldn't find my over, a, mm. over your headphones. And you can find your earbuds, which is impressive. Yes, well, I did. What I was going to say is that. You know, when you're competing in really, really high intensity, short duration events, I think there's less room for air versus when you're competing in 50Ks, 50 miles, 100 miles. Yeah. The amount of your engine, the percent of your peak fitness that you have to work at is just, it's lower. So I think that like you can enjoy and compete and not have to be 100%. Yeah. And it's really interesting that this is, I guess, an ongoing issue. You know, it's it's really something that um, you've been dealing with for many, many years. And it's you don't necessarily you haven't pinpointed what exactly is going on and how to stop it, which I think it's always interesting, especially when I'm talking to really high performing athletes, um, you know, to like I just uh, interviewed Steph Bruce and she's has ongoing GI stuff that she hasn't figured out. It's just again, like just because you're a professional athlete or you're just performing at such this high level, it doesn't mean you always have all your shit figured out too. Yeah. Um, but you may have figured out how to manage it or maybe you're still searching around for answers. Um, so, you know, relatable, right? Yeah. So- <laughs> I think a lot of us work with like kind of a, a modified deck of cards a little bit yeah. before I had, I had a big stress fracture in 2021 mm. um, just due to biomechanical insufficiencies, it seems um, in which like literally eight months before this injury or something, I had a physio tell me like a, like a European physio be like this, you, you're not injured. Like, how does your body work like this? Like this shouldn't work, but it does for you. And I think it's like, we skate by on a lot of things um, in which it was like, Oh, he kind of like saw the future. And he was like, wow, if you keep running like this, like 
something's got to give. Well, my pelvis gave is what gave, oh. what, like what gave, like my adductors were not happy, but yeah, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, we learn we're humans, we're adaptable. I think that is one of our strongest skills, traits, genetic underpinnings is that humans are really, really good at adapting. And so I think a lot of us, which is not a negative, I think a lot of us, though, like we work with what we have, as opposed to like, sitting there in kind of doom and gloom mode. Yeah. Were any other biomarkers low? Like was your B12 low? Or was anything else kind of not normal? um, Kind of coming off of that, that big training time? No, I think everything else is pretty normal. Vitamin D is like always a thing where you're like, okay, yeah. got to supplement with that. You live in a dark place. Yeah. Um, but I think I got, I, yeah, we, I mean, we did all that kind of stuff too of like, okay, yeah. like is my reticulocyte count low? Like, what am I missing? Like, do I have immature mm. red blood cells? Are they auto lysing? Like we were very convinced that like my blood cells were just auto lysing that I had like, um, oh, what is it called? It's like auto lysing. Maybe it's auto hemolysing anemia which was basically like your blood cells are just like fracturing themselves so you look oh, for like lovely. you look for like um broken down pieces of red yeah. blood cells in yeah. these tests so no we like checked my thyroid we did the whole gamut of okay. like usual things i had really 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 high cortisol imagine uh, that oh um, yeah well that's not surprising I, if you were cry i cry so much less now and i am convinced i've been told when you cry you release tears and so, and like when you, when you cry, you release tears and tears have cortisol in them. Mm. So you cry literally to release cortisol. And so I feel like I cry a lot less. So my theory that I have, I've self-proven now. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, all right. So you are an ultra runner. Let's get into that piece. And, and this is mostly a nutrition podcast. So we'll get into the nutrition piece now. we we took some windy roads, but I love all that stuff. So it's great. Um, you know, so yeah, talk to me a little bit about getting into trail and ultra running. Um, I know that as a, you know, with biathlon, with Nordic skiing, you're of course doing a lot of long runs in the mountains. So that's part of training, right? So it's not so much of a jump getting into ultra running. Um, but yeah, hear a little bit about how that, tr- how you made that transition and what you know, your, your nutrition looked like in those early years as you became more of a competitive uh, and experienced ultra runner. Yeah, I think I joke that like, oh, trail running was a natural jump because like we'd go for four hour long runs in the mountains like all the time so that's like oh Mm -hmm. and we bring snacks this is sky running this is trail running yeah yeah um so was living in montana the land of the rut which is one of my favorite trail racing weekends in like on the calendar um so very like naturally jumped into kind of that stuff and then my dad Mm -hmm. After year one of trail running, my dad goes, Corey, you know, I think you'd be better if you went longer. <laughs> like, I think you should do it. And I was like, okay, sure. So I like 2016 um, signed up for my first 100K. Like, had done sky running races in 2015. And I was like, 2016, I'm going to do 100K. Oh, there's 100K on my birthday in Portland. Like, that's so cool. We had moved to Bellingham slash Vancouver. Yeah. <clears throat> I could drive to this event super easily. I was like, maybe I should do a 50K before I do a 100K. So <clears throat> sign up for Chuckin' It. The, like, I think it was two weekends before Gorge. And I was like, I'm in. I'm sold. Did a 50K. Raced Gorge shortly thereafter. Did a 100K. And like, I was like, okay, like, yeah, I can troubleshoot. I can eat for a long time. Like, this is my jam. And I think that, but I think it was a very natural progression from 
skiing into running and adventuring in the mountains. And like snacking was something that you had to do in order to survive. I don't think I did something super well because I think I, for the longest time, was like protective of myself. Like if I was a serious athlete, then I would get hurt again from my experience with biathlon. Like if I, if I care too much, I'm going to take this too seriously. I'm going to get hurt. Um, and so I think there were things that I avoided in that space, like protein, like, like a recovery drink after exercise, et cetera, these little things that I was like, Oh no, that's too serious for me. Stretching mobility, um, excess accessory work. Like, Oh no, that, that like, that's way too serious for me. I'm not a serious athlete. I'm just having fun. So I think that the, I had a little bit of a, a step back to step forward. Um, and I distinctly remember a time where I was like, oh, okay, like, I think I'm ready to, you know, quote unquote, be serious again. But that took, that was like two years ago, I think. So it's like, it took a really? long time to really wow. feel like I was in a place where I could care about my athletics again, where I wasn't like hung up on like, doing the little things because that meant that meant investment that felt scary. Mm. That's so interesting too, because I mean, you knew many of the things to do having been such a high level athlete. And so, you know, things like, yeah, protein after workout or just stretching or mobility work, all that stuff, you knew those were the things to do, but you weren't doing them. And, and two years ago, that's, that's nuts because I mean, you were top 10 at Western States, like, oh yeah, before, just kind like, of like, like winging it, like winging you were, it, like, you just were like doing all kinds athlete. of, yeah, but, bad you were, athlete. but you were performing. I mean, you were doing all this stuff. Imagine if you had been doing all the little things. Oh right? my goodness. I know. I'm like, well, I think that we're like, might've, might've avoided my big, yeah. my big injury that I feel like yeah. I've been working back from for a long time now. But yeah, it was a yeah. big it's been like a constant evolution, which I think is normal and exciting. Mm. And I do think having actually some of my like European teammates in particular who like, yeah, who are very professional, like now, like being on the Adidas team and seeing these athletes like really live it. Um, my Russian teammates in Ekaterina and Dima, Tom Evans from the UK, like these athletes are like really in it and invested into the, into the sport of trail and ultra running. And that to me was like, oh, like kind of gave me permission to to want those same things. So like I restructured some stuff in the past year. Like I stepped away from coaching with Jason Coop and CTS to like start my own smaller coaching company so that I would Mm -hmm. allow myself time to do things like make it to yoga or like (laughs) do the strength work. Cause when I, otherwise I like overschedule myself to death and don't give myself time to, um, to do it. And part, maybe that's protective. Maybe it's the like, I can't train more than I am because I physically don't have time to do it. Mm. But I think there's a balance there of not feeling overworked while taking this opportunity that, that I currently have as a professional runner to like, all, like, yeah, it, it, feel like, it feels like opportunity on the table that I mm. haven't always been able to fully invest or engage in due to my own like personal hangups or being the only person who makes money in my household while my husband was a medical student. Like there are all those pieces (laughs) of the puzzle too. Um, he now, he now makes more than negative dollars a year, which is great. (laughs) But you know, there was, there was a four or five year stance there where it's like, I was the only one actually making any money. So Mm. I think it's, it's kind of nice to be in a mentally sustainable place and a financially sustainable place to like invest a little bit more in my like, day-to-day running goals yeah yeah oh that's so fascinating and and this is where like telling the whole story 
really is so key because I definitely, I mean, just in reading up about you, there's not like a ton on you out there, I will say, and podcasts and stuff like that. So normally I'm able to listen to a lot more. So it's really great for I'm me to sneaky. like, yeah, you're super sneaky. Um, but it meant my prep was really quick though. So that's great. <laughs> but, but it, you know, it's, it's awesome because, you know, this is the stuff that is great. To, it's just really interesting to learn about. And it, it makes everything make a bit more sense in a way. Cause like coming from where you did to where you are now, it's, it's a, really interesting journey and a fun well maybe not fun's the right word <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's a roller coaster mo- of a journey. moments of fun moments of sure. fun peaks and valleys um so like in those early years then when you were as you said winging it nutrition were you i mean were you intentionally holding back like i know you said like you weren't taking things too seriously but when it came to eating every day and um, you know, to support your training and what you were doing during races. Cause again, you were doing like a hundred milers. It's not like you were doing short things. Um, and you were coming from this background of food is important. You know, food is neutral. I need to eat. So where do you think all of that landed? Like, com- like when you're talking about, Oh, I don't want to take this too seriously, but also I'm doing all of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think once again, fortunate to have the friends and the people in my life that I've had. Mm. Um, I was part of an unofficial club in Bozeman called Fatty Fitness International, um, where <laughs> our it. goal was to go on big mountain adventures and then like make like huge dinners for everyone. Um, it was, a, it, it was, j- yeah, just the most fun group of humans to, to spend my time with. Um, and I think that that was like integral and like, once again, my relationship to like being in the mountains and eating and fueling. Mm-hmm. And then my then boyfriend, now husband, was a professional cyclist. So like he like I, and he, he's much more calculated than I am in that kind of stuff. And so I think mm. that when we started dating, and I was kind of leaving the sport of biathlon and just starting to get into into running there eventually, like that was kind of the last. Those were the the end the end of his professional cycling career was through I guess 2016. Um, so we had a number of years there where he was training professionally and I was the student and he was the cook. Uh. And so I think that that was another, like, you know, he, he, his fueling strategy, his, like him fueling himself, um, was like the, the norm, the standard in our household. And he has a very good relationship, I think, with that as well. I think his is probably, yeah, again, more calculated than mine is, but it was this, like, kind of like, this is, this is what we're having for dinner. And it's, you know, all these things, et cetera. Hey, everybody. I just received a new podcast review from a listener in Australia and wanted to share it with you all. Plants for People wrote, I started listening to this podcast because of Stephanie Bruce's interview and have since listened to almost every episode. The dialogues are honest and personal. The topics and the nutritional information are essential. Thank you for making this podcast. Well, thank you, Plants for People, for the kind words and support. If you are enjoying this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show, share it with your friends, read it, and leave a review. All this helps keep the show going, so I truly appreciate it. And if you would like to support the show financially, I do have a Patreon page that I link to in the show notes. It's on my Instagram profile as well. And I also have an Amazon storefront with some of my favorite products, as well as a general link. So you can just do all your usual shopping while supporting the show. I mean, you know, you get like 50 cents or something, but hey, it all adds up. All right, let's get back to Corinne Malcolm transitioning into running and in those early years one i benefited from the end of steven's cycling career and then two it was like once again i just like love food and love cooking and love making big meals and while i might not have been and i've got a horrible sweet tooth so it's like 
I probably made up for caloric deficits by like downing entire like resealable bags of Skittles and that kind of thing. <laughs> so I think I, yeah. I, I, the patchwork of my diet from a caloric okay. standpoint was probably glued together by gummy candies. But Got it. it was the, it was a very, yeah, I think once again, like I've never lived in a really restrictive environment. And so I think, yeah. you know, have a lot of intuitive eating on my side where it's like, yeah, I wasn't getting the protein I needed for sure, but had enough resiliency, I think from being a multi-sport athlete that I like coasted by a lot during yeah. that time period and probably got fortunate that I didn't get injured sooner, but again, wasn't dealing with these like major deficits, I think as yeah. well. So threading so you, a needle, I think. Yeah. There. Yeah. So like when you did Western States and you finished ninth, um, like that kind of environment, again, you're in your head, not taking it too seriously in a way, but again, still on a major stage top 10, which is pretty serious, right? Um, when it comes to kind of fueling that, were you still making sure like in the actual event being like, I need to get everything oh, and yeah. I need to stay on top. Okay. So it's not like you were like holding I'm back. I'm a science like nerd. That. Like yeah. I still am like, okay, you have to cool yourself down and you have to eat yeah. if okay. you're going to make it from point good, A good. to point B. I yeah. messed up. My first hundred was Leadville in 2017 uh, and went into that like flying kind of blind and was like convinced that I could eat Skittles at mm. 10,000 feet while running. <laughs> Made a lot of mistakes, like inhaled yeah. part of a potato, like coughed, <laughs> coughed for 10 miles. I've got, there's a photo somewhere of me, like just like standing at the top of Hope Pass, like eating an oatmeal cream pie. And so it was one of those things where it was like, I was poor and frugal. So my calories were like, how many like calories percent can I like get out of this food? And so like oatmeal mm. cream pies are a delight, yeah. a delight at 10,000 feet. Um, yeah. They've got all the calories that I needed and were also very inexpensive. But yeah. that morphed into, you know, using more traditional sports nutrition products on the run. Um, also, my crew would make me things like mashed potatoes and ramen and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, rice pudding, like dairy-free rice pudding. Because my crew was like, you're going to, you can't, the dairy won't be good, but we'll make you rice pudding. And like, I distinctly remember at the 2018 Western States, both like Jason Coop and Steven being there and, and them just like being like so proud and like jason telling me like oh you're doing like you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing right now corinne like amazing and i was like yes like i'm amazing and then getting to steven and like you know they're icing me down as i'm like spooning rice pudding into my face and (laughs) and steven's like no one's eating as well as you're eating like you're so good at this like no one's eating they all feel terrible and i was like okay like i'm a good eater (laughs) so i feel like you know, my, my mindset coming into ultra running, that was, was that ultra, I'm not that fast or quote unquote faster runner. And everyone, people yeah. can disagree with that. I joke that I'm like the slowest professional runner on Strava, um, coming from a ski background. Like I think my yeah. run this morning, which felt a little, you know, hodgepodge was like 1130 pace or something as I like stretched my way down the trail. But, um, in my mind, ultra running is like a, a management battle where you're like managing attrition by managing the temperature by eating really well. And those are things that I know that I can do. And so it was like, in my mind, I'm like a hundred mile race is an eating competition and I will win this eating competition. So while yes, like chill, relax, like yes, while I might have goo or some other nutrition product on the course with me, 
I also have an oatmeal cream pie. And it's like the, I think it's the balance of all that where it's like Mm. calories are calories at that point. And whatever I know that I can eat to meet X number of calories per hour over the course of a hundred, like I'm a big mix and matcher. And I think that is the relaxed nature of like, oh yeah, like I don't discount a hostess treat like that. (laughs) That is still sugar. And that's like what I need at this point of the race type of thing. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about some of your more recent races. you recently did the Madeira Island Ultra Trail, which is 115K. I saw mm-hmm. you at Canyons right after that one. I know you DNF'd because of your foot, mm-hmm. but I heard you talk about on Trail Society that you also botched your nutrition. I did. And I got like a B minus on nutrition. Yeah, I heard you say that. Um, and, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, I know you explained a little bit in your podcast about that, but, you know, also you ran that same race the year before. And I'm not sure if you botched your nutrition that year as well, but kind of just as an example of the types of products and strategies you're using in racing now, now that you're quote unquote more serious, as you say, and you're taking things more seriously, um, what that typically looks like and and kind of what takeaways you have from that. Yeah. I mean, true to form, it's still a hodgepodge. Like I, while I had traditional sports nutrition with me, I also found this like 60 pack of mochi at Costco and they're like little 50 calorie mochi balls and i was like oh this is great if i take this gel it's 160 calories and this mochi that's 50 calories that's 210 calories and if i have a bottle that's got some sports nutrition in it mm-hmm. you know i'm 250 300 calories an hour like yes so it's still <laughs> it's still a hodgepodge strategy okay. mm-hmm. but when i work with the feed i'm very like um yep. sports product agnostic which is great like i like to be yep. able to mix and match and use a variety of products um because I get palate fatigue. You just like flavors get really annoying or textures get really annoying. Um, But what I didn't do is that I didn't have enough long, long runs in my buildup due to time constraints and illness and some other things. And so I, and I've also gotten lazy with practicing nutrition on my runs, which is funny because I like am nagging my athletes constantly about this kind of stuff where like it will say like, must practice race nutrition, like in all caps in their training peaks for their long run. Um, and I expect like a detailed list of like how much fluid they drank and what they ate on the long run. I don't hold myself to the same standards sometimes. Um, (laughs) but I didn't do that a lot. And it was like, you know, I was doing a lot of runs that were under three hours. Um, I did a lot of runs in like that two to three hour space, but wasn't necessarily Mm -hmm. fueling them all super well. Um, had some that I actually like went into under fueled due to like time constraints and being busy and could like feel it immediately and be like, Oh, cool. Like botching this run because like I didn't eat X, Y, or Z thing before this. Um, but I found on race day that while I knew what to eat and I had enough product with me, I was hesitant to eat the food. Not because I like, didn't want it, like didn't like to eat it or don't, or don't want to fuel it was a hesitancy of like not having practiced and it not being like a no brainer type of thing. It was like, Oh, what happens if this makes me feel nauseous? What happens if I, if I ingest this and I like, it doesn't taste good, et cetera. And it was like a, you should be dialed and practiced enough where it's like, you don't have to think about it. Like you can rip the gel open and run and eat whatever you're going to eat and like continue to move. And I would literally have to stop and like open the gel and take the gel and then continue running because I couldn't like mentally do all the things at the same time due to Mm. really a lack of practice. Um, 
And so I have also had the distinct pleasure of having GI bugs at several Ah. races in recent memory um, where I have like puked for 60 miles type of thing. I joke that I vomit up most of the products that are on the market at this point. Um, but that doesn't get, that's not an excuse to not practice, to not have sure. your nutrition system dialed, et cetera. So it's like, I'm playing with things now for, I'm running Cascade Crest 100 at the end of July. And like, yep. I'm not gonna like, I don't, I do not want to hobble through this event due to poor nutrition. And so, um, I think that I have been better in the past of just like, doing i think when you are doing runs more in that four hour range too it's just it's easier to practice because you like i feel like i really i really have to otherwise i'm coming into runs under fueled and leaving runs very under fueled um Mm -hmm. and just didn't have that nor the mental uh stick-to-tiveness to be like i know it's only a 90 minute run but i have to eat during it type of thing so um that has been a change post madeira in practicing that nutrition, both with liquid calories and with products that I want to use during, um, during Cascade Crest coming up in July, um, a whole smattering of things, including mini mochis, um, Mm -hmm. and oatmeal cream pies, but it's like going through those, those motions to make sure it happens, including like I did a four hour run the other day where I left my dog in the car for the first half while it was still cold out because she couldn't run the whole thing with me. Um, and so it's like, I used my car as an aid station and like approached it that way in which I had some other snacks in my car that I wouldn't necessarily run with during a race, but that I would take from an aid station for sure. Like potato chips, um, or I'll buy like mini Cokes. Cause I definitely, I drink soda during the back half of long races at times. And -hmm. so it's like, I want to just like have practice with these, these products so that my, like I am mentally, not even just like my stomach is trained for it, but like mentally I'm prepared to go in ready to like pick it up, not even think about it. It's yeah. it's muscle memory at that point. Yeah. Well, you know, it's curious um, because, I mean, I know you took a long break from racing, but you did race that same race the year before. So I'm not sure if you had any of the same products around. You mentioned that you like to use all kinds of different stuff and I'm kind of the same way. But do you ever feel like you've used something in the past, you know that it's fine, you haven't used it in a long time, but it, you're still okay taking it? Or, or do you think it was just because it had been so long or maybe this wasn't as familiar? You know what I mean? Like that hesitancy yeah. that you've had. It's it's interesting to me when when you're using lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you didn't practice it recently, but if you knew, oh, I've taken this in the past and it's been fine. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I think it was. It wasn't even necessarily the products themselves that I was carrying. Mm-hmm. It was just like the lack of the lack of practice of eating at all during oh, long yeah. runs. Oh, okay, so your going into wasn't it. I made other mistakes a year yes. ago at Madeira where got it. We had our honeymoon immediately beforehand, so I like didn't uh, physically travel with enough nutrition. Oh, okay. um, lovely. So that was a whole other set of mistakes. I was like, I was like borrowing. I was like, okay, everyone count your gels. If anyone has a spare gel, like I'll take it from you. So I was like pilfering gels off of all my teammates before that's, um, Madeira. That's amazing. And uh, I got lucky because uh, some of my teammates, one of my teammates got COVID and couldn't race. So he had like all of his nutrition with him oh, wow. in uh, 2022. Uh, and so I was able to like pilfer some of his stuff and had some teammates racing the shorter distance races and they had more than they needed. So it was a, a good, it was a team effort in uh, 2022 <laughs> to make sure that I had enough calories on Got board. It. But yeah, no, I think it wasn't so much a lack of familiarity with the products. It was a lack of like having been practicing eating at all during long runs. Like I was, I was coasting yeah. by on a lot of medium long runs where I could, I could afford to, sure. to, 
not fuel during them type of thing. Um, but not in a sense of like prepping for an ultra where the year Got before it. I had more long endurance days that stacked up where I was fueling either on skis or on foot, um, mm. which made that process of eating during the race, just like more of a mental, like a muscle memory thing versus a like task that I was like unfamiliar with doing. Got it. So in your prep for the Cascade Crest 100, um, I, again, I know you like to use a lot of different things, but what kind, what specific products are kind of in your pocket or in your vest or whatever right now oh, that my you're goodness. enjoying? It's all sorts of things. So it's, I'm like, I've got Roctane from Goo um, and the Goo liquid gels. I have been playing with the precision hydration slash precision fueling stuff. Do they have that on the feed? They do. And the chews, the chews are really, I love their stuff. Good. I just tried their gel for the first time. It's like a suspension gel, more like a Morton, which I, I, which I, I like, I've used Morton in the past. Um, I, I got some of the like science and sport beta fuel gels again, kind of more, more of a suspension. The, um, never second gels are kind of somewhere in between a, a mm. suspension and like a liquid goo gel. So it's yep. a little bit liquid. It's got that quality, that but yeah. it's a liquidy and it's there. The pal- from a palette perspective, aren't like, aren't super weird. Yeah. Um, the precision fuel and hydration, they do this like chew that literally is like yep. a Turkish delight. Turkish delight. I know I've talked about it many times. On and here. so I have, yeah, so <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. I love the yes. mint and the mint and lemon. Yes flavored ones so that has been a staple recently so and then mini mochis from costco and oatmeal cream pies are also part of that um and then i also i drink um i periodically drink a protein recovery drink like a kind of a classic like a goo recovery drink or a scratch recovery drink um i don't the way in the scratch stuff doesn't mess with my stomach at all so i will oftentimes during long 100 mile or 100 mile plus efforts actually drink that from when i'm at a crude aid station Um, and I like that it oftentimes like it, I feel like it fills in the the holes. If I, if I'm behind something different in my stomach, it's like kind of a nice bolus. Um, I digest it pretty well. So I've, I will, I have used that and I will use that for a race like Cascade Crest, probably like partway through. Um, and again, maybe later, later in the race, generally in the back two thirds of the race at a race like Western States, I always had a recovery drink at the bottom of bath road. So just around the 60 ish mile mark, my, cause mm-hmm. your crew can come backwards with stuff for you there. Yeah. And then, um, at the river crossing and my, so my crew would go to green gate mile 80 would come down to the river with a bottle of recovery drink. And I would drink that on my way up to green gate. So yeah. that's been a, that I've done that. I did that during Western States. I've done that during, um, Tahoe rim trail, drink a lot of recovery drink throughout the, you know, like every, it was like every 50 K or something Yeah, when I would yeah. see crew. So that has been a good kind of go between as far as like just a little bit of something different to like yeah. stay on top of things. Did the same thing during Madeira actually at the 60 kilometer aid station, like went down totally fine. It was a good thing, like a nice thing to put in the system. Yeah, no, I love that strategy. And that's when I recommend to my, um, whether it's my ultra runners or, um, other endurance clients, especially when they have trouble eating things, but we need to get some protein in and they're, you know, or maybe they're hungry, but they don't want to eat necessarily. It's just like an easy way to get that in. Yeah. Um, I know we're coming up on time for you and you have another call. So 
I just want to ask one last question about your everyday nutrition. Um, and first, I just have to comment on your Instagram. You know, you have on there ultimate cookie monster and lover of second breakfast. So I am a fellow lover of second breakfast. So awesome. And cookies are obviously amazing. So just needed to like shout out that because I love your Instagram bio. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to know just briefly what a typical day of eating looks like. But I guess more importantly, what are you having for that second breakfast? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I'm a I'm a first, like first out the door type of person where it's like yeah. coffee or some sort of liquid. I need a, a, a liquid, generally a warm liquid in the morning. And then something easy, like I've been getting waffles from the feed. So there's like Belgian style waffles. I throw one in the to- toaster. It's like 300 some calories. It's like nice for me to like be able to eat that while like I'm driving to the trailhead type of thing. And then post mm-hmm. run um, is going to be that second breakfast time period. And I'm like a big I'm a big toast person. Like I love sourdough bread. I make sourdough bread. Ooh, um, nice. Now that the Highway 20 is open over to Mazama, um, we'll bring home baguettes from the Mazama General Store because they're amazing. So toast with goat cheese or butter or, che- or other cheese. I'm a dairy eater from Wisconsin. So there's a lot of cheese yeah. in my life and um, scrambled eggs, which normally means that I'm scrambled eggs for me and scrambled eggs for my dog. Um, and generally speaking too, that I've already had like a recovery drink like in my car yeah. on the way home more coffee once I get home. Mm-hmm. Um, although I've been drinking the scratch coffee hydration or the uh, recovery mix recently. So I do that. I try to not have extra, extra coffee. Otherwise I'm mm-hmm. like six coffees deep um, yeah. all of a sudden. <laughs> but yeah, so big fan of like a scrambled egg dish of some sort with um, with uh, good bread and goat cheese or butter or something on it. Um we also, we live really close to this really cool Asian market and they've got a bunch of udon noodles that mm-hmm. are, um, that are like kind of like, they're not, they're already soft essentially you just have to boil them. And so I've become a big fan too. I'm not like an oatmeal person, but I am an udon noodle person, it turns out. So like that will be a, a second breakfast will be like udon. Um, yeah. and like oftentimes that's like udon mixed with some other, with some like, uh, soy sauce and avocado and some other other things mm-hmm. tossed in there to kind of like round it out. Um, but yeah, I'm a big, a big fan of variety. We love bowls in our household. We do a lot of bowl, bowl dishes. Um, mm-hmm. Abby Hall, my teammate, her mom's an amazing ceramic artist and she made us these like big plate bowls and we oh, eat out cool. of those most nights. So variety there um, inspired by, you know, their Asian bowls or Mediterranean bowls or something of yeah. that nature where we can just pile stuff in them is our mm-hmm. our go-to and then there's always generally cookies we just finished our girl scout cookies <gasps> oh no last night what are you gonna so do <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna physically make cookies instead but yeah so it's it's a bunch of variety and now it's ice cream season now it's warm and sunny out so well Most that leaves, nightly ice cream yeah. is a big deal yeah well you know i'm gonna forego my usual quick bites questions because of our lack of time but one of my questions i always ask is what's your favorite ice cream flavor so obviously i have to ask that one I'm like a cherry Garcia kind of girl. I'm a, I like, I don't like chocolate bases. I like ice cream that has stuff in it, but I'm not a chocolate base for the ice cream stuff. It can have chocolate things in it, but I like a vanilla or another flavor for that base, be it mint chip or cherry or something of that nature. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like soup. I like chunky soup. I like chunky ice cream. I want stuff in my (laughs) ice cream. No sorbet over here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Corinne. Thank you for sharing your story. I really loved learning more about you. Um, where can everyone find you online? If they want yeah. to check you out. Um, so I am on everything at, at Corinne Malcolm. Um, so if you can spell my name, you can find me. 
Um, my name is spelt funny. I've got two R's and one N in Corinne. So C-O-R-R-I-N-E and then Malcolm, M-A-L-C-O-L-M. But yeah, at Corinne Malcolm on Twitter, on Instagram. Those are probably where I'm the most active. And then um, if you're interested in talking about coaching, you can go over to foothillsendurance.com. Um, that is where I'm running my little tiny coaching business out of. Happy to talk to anyone about, you know, whatever they might be running next. Awesome. Well, thank you and have an amazing time at Cascade Crest. And of course, super stoked to watch you on the live stream at Western States. I know it's coming right up. I know this will be coming out after that, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Everyone will, I'll have my bangs cut. It'll be, people will be be like, who is this person? (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much, Corinne. Yeah. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks again, Corinne, for coming on the show and chatting with me. So what's coming up on the, in the pipeline? Um, so I'm really enjoying this every two-week cadence for the show. I've been able to keep this going since January and be consistent for the first time since I started the show back in August 2019. So I do think that I'm going to continue. I wish I could do it every week, but at this point, it's just not sustainable for me. So um, yeah, I've got uh, Sage Candidate coming up. Um, I believe that's in a couple weeks. I have two awesome sports dietitian conversations, one on uh, reds and um, and the menstrual cycle, like dysfunction and nutrition on that. I have another one on uh, perimenopausal and postmenopausal nutrition for athletes. So we got two kind of female-focused, female-athlete-focused topics coming on the show soon. Um, but I got a lot of other great stuff lined up. So I hope you all are looking forward to those. I certainly am looking forward to putting those out there. And uh, one last plea to help me grow my show and give me some support. Again, it takes a lot of work, a lot of time and my own money to kind of you know, put this show on. So if you would like to support me, you can leave a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen. You can share it with your friends. And of course, if you would like to make a monetary uh, contribution, you can do so by uh, going on over to Patreon. Um, You can shop on Amazon and use my affiliate links, um, whatever feels best and appropriate for you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I will see you all next time.